Hi, everybody. I'm Art Stevens, your host for the PR Masters podcast series. And today's podcast is number 60 and is managing partner of the Stevens Group, which facilitates PR agency and digital interactive firm acquisitions. I personally am eagerly looking forward to chatting with our PR master today, who happens to be Jack Bergen. So if the word legend applies to anyone at all in the world of public relations, it truly applies to Jack Bergen. There just isn't much that Jack has not done in our industry. He's been an agency CEO, a chief corporate communications officer, the initial president of one of our industry's powerful agency membership groups, a government official, a teacher, and a Vietnam veteran. And let me fill in some of the gaps, just to name some of the organizations Jack has been involved with. Jack was CEO of Hill & Knowlton U.S. and of GCI Group. He was founding president of the PR Council. He served as top corporate executive of Alcoa, Siemens, Westinghouse, and GE. Jack graduated from West Point, and he taught at West Point as well. And to top that off, he served as Defense Secretary Casper Weinberger's speechwriter. As you can imagine, Jack Bergen has been honored with a number of industry awards from the likes of PRSA, the Business Marketing Association, and the Institute for PR. But most important, and important to me certainly, Jack and I have been friends for many years, and I am really proud to have followed his career and to see the kinds of uh, career achievements he has had. So, Jack, how's your backhand today? <laughs> My backhand wasn't that good. It was too. Uh, it was too windy today playing tennis. Oh. So. <laughs> well, you'll always have another day for tennis. But anyway, I'd like to welcome you, Jack, honestly, to PR Masters Podcast Series. And are you ready for our conversation today? I sure am. Yep. Looking forward to it. Great, Jack. So, as you know, well, as I know, and you certainly do, Jack, you have been on all sides of the PR spectrum, agencies, consulting practices, professional associations, government agencies, et cetera. Which meant the most to you, if any? Well, I think the um, the government agency probably meant, meant the most to me for two reasons. One is that I felt that in that role, in, in that job where I was a speechwriter, um, that I was involved in things that I would read about in the newspaper and see on TV that evening. So it it it, it felt ex it was ex certainly exciting, um, but you also felt like you were making a, a difference. Uh, for a, at a lot of levels, uh, socially and politically, and uh, you know, for for citizens, so that meant the most to me. Agencies, I think, was the most probably the most exciting. However, yeah. Well, in what way? How was it exciting to you? It was exciting because uh, I like competition, and uh, being in an agency meant that I was constantly. Um, you know, uh, looking for business, uh, satisfying clients, competing with um, other agencies that might be working with those clients to make my, uh, our agency be the one that got the uh, best assignments. Um, so I, I guess it was a competition thing, Art. Yeah. How do they? How does? How does it differ? You know, I mean, you have had probably more experience in the world of public relations than probably anybody I know out there. I mean, you know, given what I just uh, described as, right. as, as yeah. part of your background, what, how, how do you, how did you, were you able to f 
not flip, that's, that's, that's not the right word, but how are they able to segue, you know, from one into the other, from corporate to agency to a new association, yeah. you know, from government and so on? Yeah. Um, how, how did, how did yeah. that go? Well, the irony is it was a non-communications, a non-communications job that I guess probably gave me the both the ability to to be flexible and move move to different assignments, but also the recognition that that was that was exciting, as I said, and that was the military. So in the military, you have a lot of different jobs, um, and um, you take them on. And in some of those jobs, you're 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 taking responsibility for other people, leading other people, and you, and their lives are at risk in many of those jobs, particularly where I was uh, happened to be in a. a uh, Army Ranger, and and those were dangerous jobs for the people that I led. So after you do that, it's really funny. Um, you 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 seek out change in jobs, and you also are well able to make the changes, and you do it without fear. I think the biggest thing that the military taught me was that you know once I got once I left the military was that if I made a mistake, nobody would die. And and that is an empowering feeling. And uh, so therefore it was easy. It was easy to make, make changes in jobs. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you became relatively fearless in the world of uh, public relations and communications. Is that a, an apt description? I think so. I, I figured if I made a mistake, um, like I said, I wasn't going to die and nobody else was. So therefore I wasn't, yeah, if that's what you call fearless. It, it's the ability to, to say, um, you know, let's charge on and be bold. And, and um, so, so yeah, so that was good. I mean, it, it certainly helped, helped me in this case. Um, and that I think is what's different, I guess, too, about my own background. I didn't get into communications until I was, uh, well, I was accidental, actually. I was I was on the Army staff in the Pentagon as a lieutenant colonel when the Reagan administration came in. And I was briefing, I was in a strategy group, and I was briefing on our strategy for Southwest Asia. And uh, afterwards, Mr. Weinberger asked me if, um, if, if I would become a speechwriter. I'd never written a speech before, but I was able, you know, that's how I got the job, and that's how I was able to move from the military to civilian world. Yeah. So, well, so I, should, I was, uh, yeah. I was uh, negligent in, in not pointing out earlier when I was describing your background that you spent a number of years in the military. Uh, so it appeared at some point that the military was going to be your full career. Could you tell us about that? How many years you spent in the military? What, what, what else did you do while you were in the military? And how, how you segued into kind of government relations and Casper Weinberger? Yeah. So, like I said, the, uh, I was 25 years, if you include the four years at West Point, and, you know, sub, uh, subject my family to a lot of moves. I uh, spent, uh, left them alone when I was in Korea, left them alone when I was during the Vietnam War, when I was in Vietnam. So, uh, so I went through all of that, and it was, and it was when I was, um, I got the speechwriter's job, as I said, because I was um, I was briefing on something something different, not communications. I was briefing on on, on our strategy, um, but I got the job, and uh, and that became something that was relatively, I thought, easy to do um, after doing the policy work that I've been doing in the Pentagon. So, and I and I felt I guess I was a good writer. Um, took Latin and Greek in high school, so I was a good writer. So anyway, um, and in so the military jobs though were 
all leadership jobs, um, you know, all around the, you know, all around the world. So, um, yeah, so that, that was my military career, uh, army ranger, paratrooper, um, company commander, battalion commander, all those things that you do in the military. But, but what happened at the end though, was wonderful. I was so fortunate. Um, when I was the speech writer, I was very fortunate to have one other army officer on, um, on Weinberger's staff. And that was his, his military assistant, which is kind of like the guy who, who takes care of everybody who has to deal with the, um, with the Secretary of Defense, and that was Colin Powell. And at the time, nobody really knew Colin Powell because he was only a one-star general. But he and I worked extremely closely together. Um, my job, my job was to look at policy papers that came into the Secretary of Defense, and to highlight with a yellow highlighter those things that I knew were somewhat controversial. And then I would pass them on to, to, to Colin Powell, to General Powell, and General Powell would then. Uh, you know, decide whether they were controversial, and then he would go into Mr. Weinberg and say, you, you know, I wanted to highlight these to you, and you know, these are the things you should do, and uh, you should be careful here because this one might get us in trouble, and those kinds of things. So it was a great opportunity to learn a lot um, uh, about how how CEOs work. Uh, you know, Weinberg in a way was the CEO of the Pentagon. So it, it was a great education. Powell uh, was the one who got me my first job too. He, I went in and saw him one day when I decided to get out. I'd gone and read a book called What Colors Your Parachute? Looked up what a speech writer do. It said corporate communications. What to see General Powell? Do you know about corporate communications? He, he referred me to uh, the head of corporate communications for RCA and I, and that that led to getting a job offer when I went to see them, see that yeah, Tom Ross was his name. Yeah. So that was it. Um, did you, did you work with Jack Welsh at the GE? I did. And that was, that was interesting because about a year after I joined RCA Welsh, um, Welsh uh, met with the uh, chairman of RCA on a Sunday night. The two of them sat down first time they'd ever met each other, actually, uh, man named Thornton Bradshaw. And at the time, if you remember, uh, well, you may not remember, RCA uh, owned um, NBC. And, um, you know, Welsh wanted to get into the into the media business. Uh, GE wasn't in that business. And so he made an offer that Sunday night. And he said to Bradshaw, I'd like to buy your company. Um, on Monday morning, um, when I went to work, my boss, this fellow Tom Ross, called me in and he said, we have to go see the chairman. And there were six of us in a room. And um, basically, we were for, for the rest of the week, there, there were two finance guys, two lawyers, and myself and, and Tom. And for the rest of the week, we all just had to huddle up, up at GE and prepare GE to learn about RCA, and also we had to put together the briefings for the board and do all those kinds of things. Friday morning, uh, Thursday night, that was Monday morning that I came to work. Uh, Thursday night, I um, I was told that my job would be to stay with Welsh at the announcement, um, and along with his corporate communications person, Joyce Hergenhan. So the two of us, you know, prepared Welsh that night. And the next morning, he made the announcement. And from that day on, I was kind of Welsh's guy to try to make this merger between GE and RCA work. And it, it, at that time, it was the largest merger in history. So, yeah. 
So that's how I got to know him um, in working with him as we traveled around. And I did, I did writing for him. I did all the typical things you did. But in a big way, I also helped him um, understand the RCA organization and to introduce him around the country, around the country as he and I traveled. Yeah. So that was it. Yeah. So Jack Walsh was obviously one of the better known, you know, corporate CEOs. He got a lot of, uh, you know, uh, press. Um, and he had his various visions of, uh, of corporate management. Uh, what was he like working for, and what did, what did you learn from him? Um, one of the, oh, I asked him why he and I traveled a lot together, just the two of us, so I got to know him pretty personally, and I, and I knew him even after, I, after he left GE, and I left long before that. Um, uh, one of the things I'd like to share with, with everybody is when I asked him one day, I said, what is it? that you look for in, uh, in when you're hiring a, uh, you know, somebody to be, you know, be a leader or to be one of your staff people. And um, he, he said two things. He said one was intelligence and two was energy. And those two things, he said, if, if, if he found somebody who had, had those, those two elements, um, he wanted them on him, you know, to be part of his team. So I, I learned uh, learned a lot, you know, f- from him as we talked about different people that he thought had those things. <laughs> and I can remember after I left and I worked for one other person, I won't name the person, but it was another CEO of another corporation. He wrote me and he said, he said, you know, how can you, this guy has no energy at all. How can you work for somebody like that? You know, uh, so energy to him was a, was a big deal. Um, the guy, by the way, who I was working with, had a much better education than Jack Welch did. So he had the intelligence. He just didn't have the energy. So those were the other two <laughs> things. Yeah. yeah. The, um, yeah. So that was an exciting, exciting time uh, working with them. One other thing I could share with those, those folks who listen to podcasts to work on internal communications is how important he felt that was to communicate with employees. And he, and he, he when I joined him, um, what he kiddingly said to me that one of my jobs was to make the term neutron Jack go away. Um, and I laughed and I said, well, you've got a great communications person already in Joyce Hergenhan. I said, you know, she's, she's doing a pretty good, good job of it. And he said, yeah, but it's, it probably have to do that with your, with your, your company that we just bought RCA. And I said, okay. But, um, you know, he he was sensitive to that. And the reason he was sensitive to that was that even though he was accused of the neutron bomb at the time was a bomb that could blow up, um, could could kill people, but not not destroy buildings. So that was where the term came from. But my 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 time with him told me that. You know, he himself came from very meager means, and he cared a lot about the blue-collar workers, and um, was very much into into retraining and and giving people, you know, the best the best they could do, the best that GE could do for them when they shut down plants and things like that. Um, and uh, so, so I thought he was a big, a very uh, thought internal communications was extremely important. Yeah. Well, you know, you've had the opportunity, obviously, to work with a, a number of corporate CEOs. Um, what? 
how different was uh, working with corporate CEOs from working, you know, uh, when you were in the military uh, and reporting to top military people? What was the difference in their perspectives and uh, and, and and ways of doing things? Yes, um, it, it's it's a good question. Um, I, one of the things that I found out when I moved over at the age of 41 from the military and, and into communications, which I really had never had a communication job other than that, those three years as a speechwriter, um, was that the military leaders have a great benefit because they've got an infrastructure that's been around for 250 years, um, the US military. And therefore, a lot of things, um, People knew what to do. Soldiers knew what to do. There was good training. There was so being a leader in the military was a heck of a lot easier, I think, than the CEOs. What the CEOs faced uh, because they they came into organizations that didn't have um, those kinds of structures and, and legacies um, and all, and they had to they had to you know go with flow kind of a thing sometimes. Um, I found I found it easy to work for um, once I got into the um, got into you know major corporate corporate communications jobs. I found it easy to work with CEOs both on the agency also. I guess for two reasons. One is having to work for Jack Welch as my first communications job, even though I wasn't the CCO. You know, gives you confidence if you can survive him, you can survive anything. But the but the other was. And, and he is, and I guess it's it's a lesson I'd like I'd like people to know, um, and that is that being a CEO is a lonely job, and they and and they they can't talk to their staff. I mean they, they I mean they can't they can't necessarily um, share with their staff uh, how that loneliness affects them. And to me, um, the fact the, the role of communicator. Of all the roles, um, is probably the best role to become not just the communicator, but to become the confidant, the consigliere. And in my case, um, in two of my corporate corporate jobs, I became kind of the chief of staff. And there is no such role really in in business in the corporate world. There isn't really a chief of staff role, and maybe in some companies there is, but it's not a standard role. If you look at if you look at the White House and you look at at governor governor's officers and you look at other executive places in in government, there are chiefs of staff. There's there's a chief of staff, and that person is usually a pretty powerful person. And um, and interestingly enough, that person has to be a good communicator, even though many of them don't come from the communications role. So my point there is that that ability to understand that a CEO's job is a lonely job and they've got spouses at home that are complaining because they're traveling too much and all that kind of stuff going on and being available as a communications person, being available to uh, being aware of that and then being available to be that sounding board for the CEO. I just think it's something that, creates a tremendous opportunity. And I'm not sure that every all, all CCOs take advantage of that. Jack, you know, given, given the fact that you didn't really start your, your career, you know, in, uh, 
in the world of uh, of uh, uh, public relations and and your world outside of the military until you were like 41, you sure packed a lot of growth and uh, career climbing, ladder climbing, you know, into into your career. You've been president of this and president of that and corporate uh, confidants and CEOs. Uh, to what do you attribute uh, your ability to reach these high levels, uh, given the fact that you first got into the field a, a lot later than most other people? Yeah. Well, I think getting into the interesting enough, getting into the field later than other people probably was an advantage because um, I, I um, hadn't been – that's the word I want to use, programmed, I guess, to think that it took it was going to take a long time to move up the civilian career ladder. Um, because I, you know, I had, it was, I was coming in at that age and it, either I was going to get a, get a job that was equivalent to somebody in their early forties or, you know, or, or would bomb out and be out of it. So I had that advantage in an interesting way. It also goes back to the other thing I talked about before, which is the military, military grooms you for things at a young age to take on a lot of responsibility. So I think people were willing to give me responsibility because I was, I was, I, I sorted out, I sorted out. I wasn't scared. I, I wanted it and, and I was used to it. So I think the military and coming in late helped me, but there's one other thing that my wife makes fun of all the time. And that is that I had a boss one time who, when I was at my, Ceremony when I was moving on to another job made the, made the comment that Jack wears well, and um, my wife kids me about the fact like yes, what your boss was just saying is Jack you're like a pair of old shoes you know, but I think the ability, the ease of adjusting to different people, I think helped me a lot, so that I had some, you know, really tough. Uh, Ed Meyer, who's the CEO of Gray Advertising, who was the CEO of Germany, he, 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 everybody feared him. Everybody was afraid of him. But, um, and I was heading his PR agency, and there were a lot of other agencies within the, within the Gray family. And I just found myself just figuring out, okay, what is it that 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 makes um, admire you know tick and what is it that that motivates him and um, by trying to adjust to him um, I was able to thrive I mean he gave me the resources I need and competition for resources in any big organization is huge and so if you're able to figure out what what makes the boss tick um, and show that you can respond to that with your company or your, you know, with your PR firm, uh, um, it, you get the resources you need to survive and do well. So I think that was it. The, the ability, uh, the, the ease of adjusting um, to different situations meant that I was able to keep, keep moving up. Yeah, I think that was it. That's for sure, Jack. You know, you were the, you were the first uh, president of what is now known as the uh, PR Council, which uh, uh, I think our listeners know is the uh, primary, call it trade association, uh, in the world of public relations agencies. It, uh, the members of the PR Council are PR agencies of all sizes. Um, why, why do you think you were chosen uh, for this, uh, you know, this, this new position and this new organization why do you think you were chosen, and what do you feel you achieved during your tenure there? 
Yeah. So I think I was chosen uh, just out of luck um, because I got to know um, Dave Drobis, uh, who was the CEO of Ketchum, who was the really the motivator to other CEOs of major PR firms to do this. Um, and I think, why why did I achieve anything? What did I achieve? Or why was I successful? I also give credit to Dave because he, I, as the executive director, he and, and he as the chairman, that was his day job was running Ketchum, but but this was his other important passionate passion. The two of us were able to to get the other leaders, the leaders of the other agencies, to sign on, and that was tough, you know, at first because some of them didn't want didn't want to, didn't see the benefit of it. Um, it was in some in many cases it was the first time they were going to be sitting down making decisions with their competitors. Um, and it cost them money because we had dues. So um, so I think I uh, one of the things I achieved was understanding those guys because I had been one and women and 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 because I had been one of them. And, I, you know, I was their competitor before before I went back into the corporate world. So I had gone from GC, uh, Hill and Elton GCI and then to Westinghouse, then to CBS, and now back, you know, to the trade association. So I, I had competed with them, and I knew them, and 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 so I think I achieved making them comfortable that this was something where they could make make a difference, and um, and I think we did make a difference because the big thing then was PR was a really dirty word, and um, we just didn't like that, and we went out of our way to call ourselves at that time was the the uh, Council of PR Firms, and then we changed it to the PR Council. But we were proud of that word, and and that was important, I think, very, very important. And I feel that that we achieved it. You know, it, it became a word that that business people recognized that they needed to have a good PR partner um, in order to succeed. Um, so that was, I guess that's that's what I achieved, just making it real, making it work, getting the leadership behind it, and then being able to sign up, of, I think it was about 105 different firms by the time I had moved on to and left to go back into the corporate world. Are you still involved with them in any way as an advisor? No, no, no. I, I stay in touch with Kim Semple, but um, no, no, I'm not. No, I have a totally different... My career, by the way, since, uh, since I left Alcoa, Four years ago, has been more on the on the uh, HR side. Actually, um, I because I became the head of HR at Alcoa, as, as in addition to the head of, uh, of corporate communications. So I haven't really stayed that. Some of my clients are are are, are PR firms, so yeah. Yeah. So so tell us what you're you're actually doing now since you left Alcoa. So when I left Alcoa, I decided, as I said, to get into the talent. Uh, talent business with a focus on, um, you know, on on our on the industry that I knew, which was the communications industry. So, I'm um, I'm a coach to uh, leaders of agencies, um, uh, sounding board. I don't like the word coach, um, and they're in that, at that level anyway, because I think they've they've already proved themselves to be to be in the big time and um to be leading uh the agency but i but i'm a sounding board for them it's 
goes back to the other point I made before. It's a lonely job to be the CEO of, of a company, including an agency. And you know that too, because you were one yourself. So, um, so I am that that consigliere confidant um, and uh, to them, for them. And uh, so I'm doing that. The other thing that's, um, I think I, I, and I'd like to talk more about it, is having been on the corporate side and having been on the agency side, I can always remember when I, when I, um, you know, I, I'd started out my corporate communications career for just a, a brief two years at GE. But the real, the real exciting part was the two agencies, Hill and Elton, and GCI, where I spent a lot of time and, and all. But I, once I went on the corporate side, I wished that I had been in a CCO role before I went to the agency side because I felt that I had learned so much about what kind of pressures the uh, corporate communications officer and the CEO are under. And I think I would have been able to respond better to those pressures um, if I had, had, if I'd been on the corporate side before I went to the agency side. And, and uh, so that, that's another thing you asked me what I do. I think I bring that sense of understanding the client to my clients now. Me, very few of them have their 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 corporate their um, agency people. Very few of them have been on the corporate side. So, well, it's interesting you say that, Jack, because my career I started on the corporate side, and I right I remember uh, that very, a very young public relations director of Prentice Hall, which at that time was an American stock exchange company. Before I went on to the agency side, so you know I know whereof you speak, and that's a very interesting point. It really is. Um, how do you compare working on the agency side with the corporate side? You know, and you've had high-level positions on each. How do you, how do you compare them, if, if you can compare them? Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's a great question because um, I think I, I I guess there's two things. Well, first I'll start with the agency side. I think the agency side, as I told you before, I liked the best because it was more exciting. It was exciting because of the competition element. It is also the leadership element, um, which obviously I haven't spent all that time in the military. It was something that I felt I knew how to do. And in the agency, you have to constantly deploy resources, you know, into different clients and those kinds of things, get people to work together and, you know, all the teaming that you have to do in an agency side. And it's got to be, uh, and it's constantly changing as opposed to the corporate side where the teams are pretty pretty set in their ways over a longer period of time. Um, so, so to me, you've got to be fleet of foot on the agency side, constantly dealing with change and dealing with competition to get new business. Um, having said that, if you were to ask me what my favorite job was once I went into that civilian world um, for those 30, 30 some odd years I spent on the civilian world, I guess it would be um, my favorite job wasn't the agency. It was it was Siemens. I worked as the head of corporate communications um, in for Siemens USA, corporate communications and marketing, and then uh, head of advertising for Global Siemens in um, in Munich. And I just found that particular company of all the ones that you mentioned um, the the one where I I felt that the I don't know. It's 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 hard to say. It was the teams that we had, and they were international teams. 
seemed to be um, <clears throat> much more interesting to me because of the the diversity of the teams, the cultural diversity of the teams. But the other thing, as I look back on it, <clears throat> that that Siemens was the only one of the companies that I work with that was not, um, you know, a, a U.S. company that was so focused on on stock on the stock price. And we made we made decisions that were operational uh, decisions that were not driven by how you know how will the market look at at it this year uh, or this month, uh, but uh, you know how will it help the company over the long long haul. So as a result, it was a um, it was a, lot, a much working at Siemens was much less frenetic, um, financially frenetic, I guess is the best way to put it, than, um, than working at any of the American companies because it was always, it always seemed to be, what will this action, what effect will this action take on, uh, on the stock price? And um, so we were, <clears throat> we were thinking much more in the long haul. And as a result, just the, just the tone of the work that we did and the communications and, and marketing and advertising functions that I were in w was, was much more balanced than, um, than I felt in, uh, in the U.S. companies. Interesting. Um, didn't you didn't you follow the the CEO of Siemens into Alcoa? Was that I did. Not at not at first. Um, what happened was um, when he left. Well, when he went over there um, to become the CEO, so he was the CEO of the U.S. So he was my boy. He was the one who hired me out of the council of PR firms, and um, which was very interesting. He. he I got a phone call uh, from uh, the Corn Ferry uh, headhunter at the time, who was uh, the, the corporate who did did communications, and he had asked me if I would meet with this um, um, one of his clients, and, uh, and and he said because he's looking for somebody to talk with because I've given him three candidates, and he wants a, an outside view, not just my view as a headhunter. So, um, so I said sure, and at the time I was the head of the corporate, the head of the um, of the PR council. So obviously I knew a lot of a lot of people, a lot of communications people. So it made sense for him to ask me to be the one to meet with him. So we we went and we had um, and we actually had tea in the afternoon at a at a um, hotel in New York. And it turned out that he gave me these three names, and I, I told him I knew all three very, very well. In fact, later on, I hired one of the three when I was at Alcoa. But um, but anyway, um, we talked through them, and I gave him you know, good sound advice, I thought, um, on the three. And then we started talking about books that he had read. He had just read one of the Malcolm Gladwell books, and so turning point, we, we started talking about that, and we talked about other things like that. And that was it. And so the next day, I got a phone call from the headhunter, and um, he called me to thank me for doing that. And I said, so which one did he decide on? And he said he didn't want any of them. He wants you. And that's how I ended up leaving the PR council <laughs> to, to uh, go to work to go to work for this, this fellow. Who's, and uh, so I worked for him. He then went to Siemens in Germany. And um, after that, and then he... he um, and then what happened, his replacement, his replacement 
um, then when he left uh, that company to, and then went to Alcoa eventually, his replacement um, then hired me, um, used me a lot because, uh, and I worked, I was head of the, uh, in the marketing group in, in Munich. And um, so I ran the advertising program for CMV Global Advertising. It was a huge, it was a huge account, Ogilvy, like a $350 million account that we, that Ogilvy pitched to us and we, and we hired them. And, um, but then what happened is uh, the CEO, Klaus, Klaus Kleinfeld was his name, um, you know, kept badgering me about coming, coming back to, you know, and doing that in the States. And my wife also badgered me about not spending all my time in Europe. And um, so that's how I ended up with him again. Yeah. Interesting. So Jack, uh, this is the time during my chat, you know, with PR masters podcast guests that I ask, you know, the, the deep penetrating philosophical question. Are you ready for it? (laughs) Sure. And that is, and that is, um, Obviously, you have been in uh, in the world of public relations and corporate communications for a, a fair amount of time. Um, how has the world of public relations changed since you got into it, and what do you envision its future to be? I think that it's um, it's well. First of all, I don't think it's changed a lot, a lot from, other than the uh, digital side of things. I think the same motivations that I found when I went to Hill and Nolton back in the late eighties and nineties at the GCI are there, you know, as a, as as the head of an agency, I think my clients who are head of agencies face a lot of the same things, which is finding good talent and satisfying clients. I would say that the toughest changes though are on the talent side is that today compared to 30 years ago when I was at Hill and Alton, um, there aren't that many good writers anymore. And, um, and I think that the education system has failed that generation that came along later. And as a result, you know, the core of, of, of what I believe, you know, we should be doing in communications, um, the writing side of the thing, is uh, is really deficient. So I think that's a major change. That and yes, digital has enabled us to compensate for that because you don't. It doesn't require, uh, you know, the kind of writing that I'm talking about. It's it's much more statico, statatico, and um, and it requires creativity and and ingenuity and all that kind of stuff. But. But so I think we're missing the the writing part. The other, which I think is a very very important lesson that I'd like to leave with everybody, uh, that I that I feel um, that I feel we really need to know. And I didn't know it until I got until I got onto those those corporate roles. Is that uh, corporate uh, corporations are. Um, are under more diverse challenges, I guess. We always had crises back in the 80s and the 90s and that kind of thing and all of that. But now you've got social activism, which is a major, major thing that really didn't exist then in my mind, any of my, my, my experience. The other thing is the ability, the importance of data, and but particularly data that shows, that shows outcomes um, and, and that kind of thing. 
I think that back in the old days, Art, we were able to show that we had gotten, you know, some good, 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 good stories, good, you know, good coverage and those kinds of things to satisfy our, our clients. And, you know, we came up with ways of counting impressions and all that kind of stuff. But to me today, um, the real the real thing, and I call them outputs. I call I call inputs. How many press releases did you put out? I call outputs. You know how many impressions did you get from those? But 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 outputs are no longer. They were no longer satisfactory for me to show a CEO or a CFO in order to get the budgets I needed. They wanted outcomes, and the outcomes are business outcomes and ways that you move the needle. And so I think that the the, the demand for being able, as communications people, whether you're an agency or a corporate communicator, to show value is extremely important. And I can always remember back when I was in, uh, at Siemens back in the 90s, uh, not the 90s, uh, the early uh, 2005, 6, 7, 8, I, I lucked out because I, I found a, a, a company that enabled me to show the financial impact of the work we were doing. And then when I, and, and, and the reason it helped me was just not to, just not to be able to show other people that we made a financial impact, but was able to, it gave me the uh, tools, the means to go fight for budgets. So, because there's a tremendous competition in a corporation among all the staff sections for budgets. The IT guys want, want you know, they want a, a bigger part of the pie. Um, the, um, the, you know, the procurement guys, everybody had had their budgets and, and to fight for. And what gave me the ability to fight for budgets was to get good financial data um, that I could make the case that we were going to we were going to drive sales um, um, or we were going to in some way or other mitigate risk. That was that the law that I could get the lawyers behind me to say, yes, if you give Bergen this money. You know, it'll it'll make it less risky that X, Y, and Z will happen. So to me, that's a major difference. Yeah, than from back in the back in the old days, the need to show wow. value. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. wow, Jack, that is that is really a, quite a quite an observation and insight. So, Jack, we're gonna we're gonna quit now. Um, on that note, you know, a word a word to the wise is sufficient and all that stuff and. Uh, I'd like to thank you, Jack Bergen, on behalf of our PR Masters podcast listeners. Thanks a lot for your wisdom, for your candor, for your directness, and your eloquence. You know, you are indeed a PR Master, and I thank you so much for joining us today, old friend. Thanks a lot, Art. Thank you. Bye-bye now. You're a good man. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. And thank you all. Thank you all for joining us today. I am Art Stevens, your host. Uh, see you again next time on the next PR Masters podcast. Take care, everybody, and have a great day.